before I begin, I just wanted to uh, thank you, all those of you who have been uh, praying and, and showing concern over the past week, uh, because I wasn't here last week. And so I think maybe you might think that I have COVID. No, I didn't have COVID, okay? Uh, I was not here because I was uh, suspected or rather quite likely a close contact and I was doing my part to make sure everyone's safe lah, and I don't pass it on. Okay, we're supposed to pass it on in this church but not COVID. Huh? Okay, let's come to the Lord in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you. We want to rejoice that you have given your word to us, your word of truth, your word of life. And so today as we sit at your feet, Lord, would you unpack it for us? Would you help us, Lord, to understand, to digest, and also to apply the truths that you reveal to us by your Holy Spirit? We ask, Lord, unite our hearts in the attitude in which we listen and the way I preach, Lord, in a way that is glorifying to you. We lift your name on high. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we've completed the first half of this year's pulpit series. Okay, so for those who have been with us at least uh, for the past half year. Uh, we've been going through 1 Samuel, the book of 1 Samuel. And throughout that book, we saw how the people of Israel transitioned from a very chaotic period of their history in the period of Judges into a, a new system of government and a new way of, uh, almost like a new way of relating to, to God as his people which was the monarchy of Israel under the leadership of the prophet Samuel that led that transition. Now, at this point, the kingdom of God was to be paralleled uh, by the kingdom of Israel. And so if you, if you look at the kingdom of Israel, you are supposed to catch a glimpse of the kingdom of God. At least that was the intention of God's design. And the steward of that kingdom of Israel, this political kingdom of Israel, was meant to be the king of uh, Israel. Okay, the, sorry, the steward of that kingdom of Israel, yeah, was meant to be the king of Israel. But then we saw the decline of Israel's first king, Saul. And at the same time as we saw that decline, we saw the rise, the raising of King of Israel 2.0, okay, who is David, the man after God's heart. But before we can move into David's reign as a king of Israel, which happens in 2 Samuel, we are going to take a short break. We're going to pivot over to the New Testament, okay, to just have a little shift of perspective and to uh, examine the, 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 uh, another section of God's word. And we'll be seeing how the kingdom of God, as opposed to being uh, manifest in a political kingdom, we'll be seeing how the kingdom of God is truly manifest in the world through the eyes of the early church. Okay, so we will save 2 Samuel for next year. We focus on Acts for the rest of this year. Okay, so we are switching over to a new series of the book of Acts. And so let's set the scene for this new series of Acts. The book of Acts is written by a Gentile physician known as Luke. Okay, any Lukes here? No, huh? I, I, I can't think of a church member here named Luke. Okay, never mind. So uh, 
yeah, he, he was a Gentile, he was a doctor, he was uh, well-educated, and he was very meticulous in his writing style and all that. Okay, although he wasn't one of Jesus' disciples, he was a close friend of the Apostle Paul. And so if you're wondering where he came to know about all the stuff that he wrote about, okay, he would have witnessed some of it, he would have heard it from uh, Paul and, and other apostles. And so Luke had also accompanied Paul on some of his missionary journeys. And just like how 1 Samuel was just half of the story, Acts is also only half of the story. So if you thought that Acts was a complete book on its own, uh, no, technically, the first half is the Gospel of Luke, okay, who is the same author. And both books are written as, uh, they're, they're meant to flow into each other. Okay, so Gospel of Luke into Book of Acts. And so uh, there is Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And then only Acts, right? So if you remove the Gospel of John, you go from the end of Gospel of Luke straight into Acts. Uh, that's how it was written, okay? And so the, uh, the, both these books, Luke and Acts, were written to somebody named Theophilus. And the purpose was to reinforce or supplement other teachings about Jesus. We don't know who this Theophilus is, okay? Uh, whether they were a patron, whether they were a seeker, whether they are a new believer, church leader, you know, the, the name translates to friend of God, okay, or lover of God, the friendship kind of love. Uh, or it can be a general term for all believers, okay, we don't know. Okay, anyway, the Gospel of Luke covers the birth of John the Baptist who prepares the way, into the birth of Jesus, who is the way, and then that goes all the way through his life, death, resurrection, ascension, and continues into Acts, okay? And then it quickly recaps the ascension of Jesus as part of what has been happening so far. So because this is written in two parts, Acts opens with a bit of uh, something like, you know how you watch those TV series, huh? And then it's very kanchong and it's like, oh yeah, it ends on a cliffhanger, then the next episode. So you now got Netflix, you can binge, right? So uh, you immediately go to the next episode and then they will say, previously <laughs> on Dragon Ball Z or uh, on the last episode of Heroes or whatever. Okay, so it will recap what happened in the previous part. So this is what Luke is doing with the ascension of Jesus. Okay. So Jesus has been the main character up till now through the Gospel of Luke. And although the Gospel message is still about Jesus, now the story zooms in on the disciples of Jesus. Later, it will extend into the birth of the church and the advancement of the Gospel and you know, the different things that happens to the disciples as they try to advance the Gospel. But coming back to the disciples, up to almost this point, the disciples of Jesus, are, they are mainly a bunch of misfits. Okay? They are uh, constantly bickering each other. They are quite clueless. They don't understand who Jesus really is. Uh, they abandon him. They lose their purpose after uh, uh, they, they go back to their old life and all that after Jesus has died. Uh, at, but now, the disciples and not just the remaining 11 apostles, huh? 
but also the rest who believe in Jesus. Now the disciples were on the brink of something totally new, something unprecedented. And so what we'll be looking at today is a prelude, okay, a prelude of sorts to the birth of the church of Jesus Christ. And that is, is almost like a leading up to a birth narrative, okay? So you can think of it as people, members, uh, regular worshippers, people who belong to Penang Trinity, you can think of this as a sort of spiritual genealogy, okay? This is our heritage, our spiritual heritage. This is where we come from. And that brings us to today's passage, Acts chapter 1. Jesus is about to leave his disciples in an earthly sense. He's about to, you know, physical body, no more with them. But before he leaves, he has one final meal with them. During that meal, he commands them. He tells them, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised. As I was preparing this message, I kept being drawn back to this verse again and again and again. And the, I was drawn to the fact that it contained two things. Firstly, it contained the command. Secondly, it contained the promise. And so today I'd like to frame our message under these, just these two things. So don't worry if the first point, second point, very long, and then, oh, still got third point. No, 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 <laughs> just two-point sermon, okay? So we'll be looking at the promise and the command in this passage. And the takeaway for today is that the promised Holy Spirit enables disciples of Christ to obey His command to witness for Him. Okay, so if you uh, lose me, or, or rather if I've lost you, uh, come back to this, remember this, okay? The promised Holy Spirit enables disciples of Christ to obey His command to witness for Him. Well, let's look at the first thing I'd like us to focus on, which is the promises. In today's passage, there are several promises made by Jesus and the Father, but before we go into each of them, I want to point out some things about promises. Firstly, that the entire history of redemption revolves around the concept of God's promises. It revolves around covenants made with God, right? Covenants made with Noah, made with Abraham, the people of Israel at Sinai, a covenant made with David. And so all these covenants are really, they contain promises of God, promises that God makes. And up to this point in the book of Acts, all these promises that God has made through his covenants, without fail, he has always kept them. He has always upheld his end of the bargain. And so God always keeps his promises. Second thing I wanted to point out is that the Greek word for promise that is used uh, not just in today's passage but also throughout the New Testament is a legal term that points to a promise that is officially approved. Okay, so what that means is it's not just a pinky promise, you know, uh, like, you know how you say, uh, later I get you lunch. Ah, you promise, ah, promise, ah, and make sure. Ah. And then later, if they don't get you lunch, you don't take them to court, right? <laughs> you don't send them to jail, right? Uh, so, the, the, this promise that God makes, uh, according to this Greek word, carries weight. It 
carries authority. It carries the, the, uh, not just authority, but the highest authority. Okay, so God isn't just making good on His promises all the time. He makes them with supreme authority. There is no higher authority than God that can override His promises. You know, sometimes if your, your kids make silly promises with each other, as a parent, you have the authority to tell them, don't do that, right? Don't, don't make that kind of silly promise. You, you don't, don't need to keep it, it's silly. Right? But uh, no higher authority can override the promises of God. And so his promises are guaranteed to be fulfilled. So he has never failed in keeping his promises, and it also has supreme authority guaranteed to be fulfilled. So keeping that in mind, let's look at the promises we can find in today's passage. Firstly, the promise of the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, a few times, mainly in the Gospel of John, Jesus promises several times that the Father will send the Holy Spirit to them. And so, in fact, John chapter 16, verse 7, pretty much describes what is happening in today's passage, that Jesus is going away in an earthly sense, and he promises to send the Spirit to them. Okay? On top of that, Jesus tells them, this is such a good promise that it is for their good that he is leaving them. You imagine your Lord and Master, your life revolves around this guy for three years. You just watch him go through miracles. He is the most uh, amazing person on earth. He is leaving and he says, it's good for you that I leave. Okay, and so uh, it, Jesus tells them, this is such a good promise that it, you know, me leaving pales in comparison to the benefit that you will receive when you receive the Holy Spirit. So why is receiving the Holy Spirit so good compared to having Jesus in an earthly sense? We will look uh, more into the benefits of the Holy Spirit in future sermons, uh, maybe next week. But today, I want us to look at just one aspect of why the Spirit is so good that it is worth exchanging for Jesus' earthly presence. And that brings us to verse 5, which is the promise of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I won't go into you know, the, the distinction between baptism, spirit baptism, and, and different charismatic ideas about that. Uh, maybe I'll address that next week. Huh? Okay, but the baptism of the Holy Spirit. In verse 5, Jesus promises them that they would be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now, what does that mean? Well, to be baptized literally means to be completely immersed in something, to be submerged. Okay? So if you think about a submarine, it is completely immersed in water. Okay, I know submarines can come up and float or whatever, but the nature of a submarine is, is designed to be underwater. Lah, okay? So a submarine completely immersed in water. And when you're completely immersed in something, you're submerged in something, you become one with that thing. Okay, when a submarine is immersed in the ocean, if you are observing and you're looking from a helicopter outside, you cannot see the submarine. You just see the ocean, right? And so it's been completely engulfed by the water. 
And so as long as it remains immersed in the water, it cannot go anywhere without the water. You won't have a dry submarine somewhere underwater, right? It has become one with the water. So to be baptized in the Spirit means to be completely immersed in Him and as a result, becoming one with Him. Now notice I say Him, uh, not it, right? Because the Holy Spirit is a person, okay? So a uh, common mistake that, that I, I used to make also uh, back where I, where I was still learning about the Holy Spirit. The uh, Holy Spirit is a person, okay? Not, not a force or a thing, okay? So, uh, yeah. Becoming immersed in the Holy Spirit is becoming one with Him. He becomes God dwelling in us. He is the third person of the Trinity, God dwelling in us. And so when we are baptized in the Holy Spirit, we become one with Him, we cannot go anywhere without Him. It's not a case of, okay, we are baptized by the Spirit and then after that we forget about Him and we go do our own thing and then, uh, uh, Holy Spirit, where are you? Where are you? Come back, come back. Uh, no, He is one with us already. Okay? So we cannot go anywhere without Him. And you compare this with Jesus, who is a man, he is God, but he is also fully man. The disciples could not have Jesus with them all the time because he was limited by his human body. Okay? So, if Jesus was in the bathroom and the disciples were outside fishing or whatever, Jesus was not with them at that point. Okay? So, he couldn't be in two places at once. And so, this is one reason just one now, okay? Why Jesus' departure was beneficial for the disciples. Because then they would receive the Holy Spirit, be baptized by the Spirit. They would have God with them all the time, okay? Uh, they, they would have His presence all the time, a very constant presence in their lives all the time. And when Jesus talks about John baptizing with water and then he, he, he said, uh, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized by the Spirit, right? And so he's making a contrast between the symbolic washing that water baptism brought and the power that the Holy Spirit brings when he is in someone's life. And that brings us to the promise in verse 8. The promise of power from the Holy Spirit. Uh, Jesus promises that the Holy Spirit comes with power. You know, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Okay, so what is this power? You receive power doesn't mean no more electricity, you will receive electricity. Uh, it doesn't mean you receive power or now you can fly, you can shoot lasers out of your eyes. No, this power that the Holy Spirit brings is what makes the believer able to do whatever the purpose of the Holy Spirit is. Okay? So it is an enabling power, a power that gives the ability to accomplish whatever the purpose of God is. Okay? So in the immediate context of this promise that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you is the ability to be witnesses 
in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. We'll look at that more later. Okay? So, Jesus promises power to accomplish the purposes of God by the Holy Spirit. And the last promise I'd like us to look at is found in verse 11, the promise that Jesus will return to earth from heaven in the same way that he went. As Jesus ascends into heaven, the disciples are watching him. Okay, they are, they are looking at him and then he's covered by a cloud and then he disappears from their sight. And then they, they continue looking intently into the sky. And so I did a little bit of study into this, this uh, short, short little portion. And the, the Greek word used for the disciples looking into the sky, intently looking up into the sky, uh, carries with it the idea of spectating something. Okay, spectating in the sense that you know, as a sports spectator, you, you spectate a football match, you are not going to run onto the field and start kicking the ball, right? You get thrown out. You're just watching. You're not part of the activity. You may cheer, lah, okay? but you, you are not actually involved in that activity uh, personally. And so, this, this uh, word for spectating the, the ascension of Jesus, just watching uh, not being a part of it. And so as they're spectating the ascension of Jesus and you know, he's covered by a cloud symbolizing the presence and glory of God, two angels appear next to them. Okay? And these angels promise the disciples that this same Jesus will come back in the same way. And so what this means is not just that he went up, he will come down. Now. Okay? It's not just that. It's not as simple as that. It means that he will return to earth from heaven, yes. He will be the same Jesus. He won't be some other son of God, some other angelic being, some other reincarnation. He will be the same Jesus, the same man whom they know and love. And this return will also be according to his, his timing. Now, the disciples... Short, shortly before he ascended, uh, they asked him, you know, at this time, are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel? And so the reason why they asked this is because when the disciples heard that they were going to receive the Holy Spirit, their minds would have instantly linked it to the restoration of the kingdom of Israel. Because in the Old Testament, these two things are often mentioned closely together. Okay, you receive the Holy Spirit, there will be some sort of restoration of the kingdom of Israel. And so they thought of this. They heard, Holy Spirit, oh, okay. Is it time? Are you going to restore the kingdom of, the, the kingdom of Israel? Now, what's the motive of somebody asking about the timing of something important? For example, if I have a date with my wife before we got married. Now it's like, we go anywhere, we go together, lah, right? But let's say I'm supposed to meet her somewhere. Uh, she's giving me, she's staring at me like, what are you going to say? Okay. Uh, for example, before I got married, you know, I have a date with my wife. It's important. Uh, and then, I, let's say, I ask her, okay, what time are we going to meet? Right? Uh, I need to know the timing of it, the, the timing of the meeting, so that I can prepare so that I can get ready so that it's not just uh, uh, our date is at 7pm okay 
6.59, I get out of bed and I start you know, making my way to wherever I'm supposed to meet her. So we, we want to know the timing of something important uh, in order to prepare, in order to get ready. But Jesus' response to the disciples in verse 7 is, they are not to know. <laughs> you don't worry about the timing. You just get ready. Okay, so Jesus is telling them, you always be ready. Always be, within the context of this passage, always be witnesses for Christ. Don't only start being a witness for Christ. Don't only start getting ready when you think the time is near. Now, all these promises, remember how God keeps all His promises. Remember how all, all His promises carry His supreme authority. We see that all these promises that I've listed so far will come true in the next chapter, Acts chapter 2. And they continue to be fulfilled even up to today in the lives of you and me. The Holy Spirit is given to all who believe in Jesus. The Holy Spirit becomes one with us. We are baptized in Him when we give our lives to Jesus. He is our constant helper, comforter, counselor, guide. He is always with us everywhere we go. And of course, the Holy Spirit empowers us to do what we are completely unable to do without Him. And so all those promises came to pass. They continue to be fulfilled in us today. The only promise that has yet to be fulfilled, I'm sure you, you know, the last one, right? The second coming of Christ. But since, as we can see, since so far, the, from the beginning of time all the way until the book of Acts, all the way until today, God has got a flawless track record in keeping all His promises and no greater authority can stop this last promise from being fulfilled. And so, friends, are you ready? Now, let's pause for a moment and reflect on this question. What is one promise of God that you are struggling to believe? And why is that? And for those with kids back home, is there anything that God says will happen that you don't think will happen? And why? Okay, so let's spend some moments in reflection. Those at home, you can engage a short discussion. Two minutes.
Okay, let's look at the second part of today's message, which is the commands found in today's passage. There are only three commands that can be found in today's passage. The first one is, Jesus tells the disciples, do not leave Jerusalem. Okay, and so he says, do not leave Jerusalem. But, okay, then the next one. And so this first command to remain in Jerusalem, as I was preparing, I was wondering, why? Uh? Why remain in Jerusalem? Why not get a head start? You know, you, Jesus wants them to be witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. So those strategic, lah, those who are going to witness to Jerusalem, they stay here. Those, uh, they can get a head start, head towards Judea, head towards Samaria, start heading to ends of the earth, right? Then Holy Spirit come on them on their journey, okay, lah, right? They can still be witnesses. So why remain in Jerusalem? And then it, it occurred to me that if they remained in Jerusalem, that means there would be a gathering of believers in one place. Okay, Jerusalem is, is a large city, but uh, especially if they all share the common faith, uh, they will very likely be with one another lah, because it, they, they are just within the same city, right? And so remaining in Jerusalem means there will be a gathering of believers in one place when the Holy Spirit comes, rather than spreading out and receiving the Holy Spirit individually. When Pentecost came, the Holy Spirit came upon the believers, they were together. And so Acts chapter 2, verse 1 actually records that. The day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place because he told them to remain in Jerusalem. And so this didn't just lead to you know, them getting the attention of unbelievers. Uh, Holy Spirit came on them, started speaking in different tongues, and because there, there are so many of them, uh, you know, it's more convincing, different languages. Uh, it was more than just that, more than just the spectacle of having a large crowd uh, receive the Holy Spirit. It was also the birth of the church. When they were all gathered together in that one place, it was the birth of the church of Jesus Christ. And the church is something that God intended to be a community of believers, not a bunch of scattered individuals doing their own thing, but receiving power from God. The church, God intended to be a community of believers. Now, to all of us here, whether we are attending today's worship service in person or online, I just want to take the opportunity to, to remind you that as a member or regular worshipper, you consider yourself part of Penang Trinity, that you are not an individual belonging to an abstract organization. You are not an isolated individual. Take a look to your left and your right. Look at the person next to you. Uh, everybody looking down now. Uh. <laughs> Look at the person next to you. Look at your left, look at your right. You are part of that same body and community. You are not an individual in this church. 
or in the Church of Jesus Christ for that matter. You're part of a community, you're part of a family. And I know it's been hard to experience that in the past two years. All right, when our usual experience of community, which usually involves some kind of makan, right? This is Penang, huh? Uh, community must involve food, must involve uh, talking with food uh, and going out with people to have food. And, and so our experience of community has, has changed drastically for so long in the past two years. Uh, I, I, I know it's been difficult. But maybe there, there are also some of us who even before the pandemic, even before the pandemic hit, You've been faithfully part of our worship services and you have still never experienced that sense of community. And so if that's you, uh, whether because of the pandemic or you, you, even before the pandemic, you felt isolated, uh, if, if you feel like an individual and not part of a community, I just want to have two simple challenges for you. Okay, Two simple challenges. First challenge find and join a small group, okay? If you're already part of a small group, be regularly part of that group. I highly doubt that you can find a regular small group member who says that they feel like they don't belong to a community, if not a family. And I'm sure many of those of you who belong to small groups can attest to that as well. So that's my first challenge. If you don't want to feel like an individual, you want to feel like you're part of a community, find, join a small group. Second, uh, if, if you don't know how to join a small group, come and ask me. Call the office. Go look for our church leaders. Uh, ask anybody and people will bring you to the right people. Okay? So that's my first challenge, join a small group. Second challenge, don't wait for someone to reach out and approach you. Reach out to someone and make yourself known to them. Because for all you know, that somebody else is waiting for somebody to reach out to them too. Okay, so that's, that's my second simple challenge. Don't wait for someone to approach you. Just go up to somebody and, Hi, this is my name. Who are you? I see we've been part of the same church for very long already. Never talked to you before. Oh, you like durian? Ah? I also like durian. You like chakwe ah? I also like chakwe. See, community. Okay, so I, I won't get too much into church and community life. I'll leave that for uh, uh, another sermon in the coming weeks. Let's move on to the second command, which is to wait for the gift of the Spirit. So first, uh, remain in Jerusalem. Second, wait for the gift of the Spirit. Uh, the disciples were commanded, wait to receive the Holy Spirit. Now, between the ascension of Jesus and the arrival of the Holy Spirit upon the believers at Pentecost, that was a period of 10 days, okay, because Jesus was with them. Uh, 40 days, then he ascended. Pentecost is the festival of weeks, 50 days, okay, after Passover. So, 10 days period. So, why were the disciples commanded to wait that 10 days? Why not instantly receive the Holy Spirit after Jesus ascended? I don't think the Holy Spirit had to apply for visa to come or anything like that. Right? So why wait? Uh, I confess, I can't think of many plausible reasons, but one likely one, one likely one I can think of is that their waiting requires them to exercise faith. 
Because now that Jesus is no longer with them physically, they can no longer depend on him in the literal sense of uh, having a human teacher giving them instructions. Okay, now Lord, what do we do now? They can no longer depend on him uh, as a human teacher. Uh, they had, when, when, they had to, uh, when they needed to know what to do next, they could not just rely on their sight. They had to progress further in their faith. Okay. And so if they didn't believe in his promise that he would send the Holy Spirit, then in that 10 days of waiting, if they didn't have faith of, uh, the, the faith to believe that he would send the Holy Spirit, which would direct uh, them to what to do next, if they didn't believe in that period of 10 days, they would have done what they had done previously. They would have just gone back to their fishing boats. Right? Jesus has ascended. He told us, wait, I don't believe him, I go back fishing. But instead, they obeyed. They waited. They spent time in constant prayer. And so this is verse 14. They joined together constantly in prayer, together with other believers. And so this is a lesson for us to wait and seek the Lord in prayer to ensure that we are truly following the Spirit's leading and depending on His power instead of rushing ahead to do things that we think are good to do just for the sake of having something to do. But make no mistake, there is something for the disciples to do. There is work to be done. And that brings me to the third command, which is possibly the, the, the core verse and the central theme of the entire book of Acts. To be his witnesses in Jerusalem, all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so this is a parallel command to what is found in Matthew 28, 19 to 20. We know that one, right? The Great Commission. Go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And so Jesus' command in Acts chapter 1, verse 8 has a similar idea, that they would go, they would be witnesses, meaning they would testify about Jesus, and that would you know, uh, be, be part of the process of making a disciple. But I want to highlight that this command came after the command to wait for the Holy Spirit. When the Advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of Truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. You also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. This is what uh, Jesus says in John 15. And so there is a link between the Holy Spirit the power that comes with the Holy Spirit and witnessing to others about Christ, testifying to others about Christ. As we will see from Peter's testimony next week, this work of witnessing for Jesus, this work of making disciples, doesn't just require the testimony of believers. It requires the work of the Holy Spirit. We cannot manipulate, maneuver, convince, bash people into becoming disciples of Jesus Christ. It requires the work of the Holy Spirit. And so the fact that this work requires the activity of God himself for any sort of success 
doesn't just show us how dependent we are on Him and His power, as I mentioned earlier. It also shows how important a work this is, that it can only be achieved if God is working. And God wants us, He commands us to be part of that work. Not just pastors or missionaries or church leaders, but every single person who considers themselves a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. God commands us to be part of that work of making disciples. And this is not just a command that's given to us individually, but collectively as a community of believers, as a church. We have 676 church members. This is our church's formal membership role. Okay? But that's just the membership of Penang Trinity. If you believe in the Lord Jesus, who died and rose again, and you follow him as your Lord and Savior, then you are his disciple. You are a member of his body known as the church. And the mission and purpose of the church is to make disciples of Jesus, to witness to the ends of the earth. And so my question to you, friends, is not as a member of Penang Trinity, but as a member of the church of Jesus Christ, what are you currently doing to contribute towards making disciples because that is the mission and purpose of the church of Jesus Christ that you belong to. What are you currently doing to contribute towards making disciples? God is always at work around us. That is the truth. The kingdom of God is advancing. Where are you while this happens? Where are you while he is working? Are you part of God's work? Serving him in whatever way that he's called you as a witness? Maybe not as a door-to-door evangelist. You know, maybe not as a preacher. Maybe not as somebody in full-time ministry. But maybe he's called you to live out your Christian beliefs in your school or your workplace with integrity, not trying to hide it. Maybe he's called you to testify of his love by showing it to people who don't deserve it just like how we don't deserve his love. Maybe he's called you to witness of his sacrificial nature by paying the price of foregoing something you value greatly for his sake. Or maybe he's called you to make disciples by taking up a leadership role so you can influence others by letting them see that you are not self-sufficient and you are not capable and you constantly need the Lord's leading yourself. Maybe. Uh, John Stott comments on the disciples staring into the sky after Jesus ascended. Remember how I said the the Greek word is uh, that they were spectating his ascension? John Stott writes, there was something fundamentally anomalous about their gazing up into the sky when they had been commissioned to go to the ends of the earth. Their calling was to be witnesses, not stargazers. And so friends, there is work to be done. Are you currently involved in God's work? 
Or are you just a spectator of that work, a stargazer? Let's look at our second and final question for today. What are you currently doing to contribute to the purpose of the Church of Jesus Christ, which is the making of his disciples? And for the kids, how can you help others know Jesus better? And so parents, you can help make a suggestion, and if they agree, you can hold them accountable for it. Okay, let's spend two minutes reflecting on this. In conclusion, Jesus left the disciples with work that needed to be done by the power of the Spirit. And so as spiritual descendants, may we be faithful to that work. And so I'd like you to know that the promised Holy Spirit enables disciples of Christ to obey his command to witness for him. Would you be a witness of Jesus to those around you and beyond? and do trust in the promises of God and obey his commands. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.